On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great. And Lance, this episode is really compelling. We we have an author on, someone who we've met sort of through social media. Her name is Jax Miller. She's written a book called Hell in the Heartland. It is about the disappearances of Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman. And while setting this interview up, Jax was like, well, you know, why don't we get some of the Bibles here if we can? So we have Laura's mom, Laureen, and Laura's cousin, Lisa, on as well. Yeah, these two are amazing. Uh, Laureen and Lisa uh, are a great pair, a strong pair. Like, uh, Laureen is uh, so determined and and so uh, vigilant in her quest for justice, and Lisa is the perfect complement to that. Laureen has this really unique calm about her. She'll precisely deliver your words, and you're hanging on to every one of them because what she's saying is so important. Yeah, it's a bit of an emotional interview, Lance, and of course, I guess it should be. Laura and Ashley were young girls, young women, really, when they were uh, when they went missing. And also, Kathy and Danny Freeman were found in the fire. There was a fire, and uh, the two girls were missing. So in this interview, we focused a lot on Laura and Ashley, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman, uh, because it can't be lost that these two young women, they, they were 16 years old. Ashley was actually most likely murdered on her birthday. She was born on the 29th, and that fire, that arson, uh, took place on either the 29th or the 30th. So uh, it's it's a true tragedy. Um, and to see these two women fight through it and, and, and speak about it with such uh, resilience is really inspiring. And Lance, real quick before we get to the interview, I want to mention a new course that we're doing. It's called the True Crime Podcaster's Survival Guide, and it's how to not fail in the true crime podcast industry. You can check it out at avid.fm slash true crime. There are links in the show notes. And there's also a real fun game that we're doing that accompanies it. The game is called Crime Riddle, and you can check it out at crimeriddle.com. Test your true crime history and detective skills by solving four riddles on famous murder cases in history, and you get a chance to win free access to the Citizen Journalism audio course that is a true crime survival guide that Tim just mentioned and a special mystery box gift prize if you solve the four riddles at crimeriddle.com. And we have an early bird special. The first 50 students to sign up will get 50% off using the coupon code Crawl space, and that is at avid.fm slash true crime. Okay, thanks everybody, and make sure to check out Hell in the Heartland Murder, Meth, and the Case of Two Missing Girls by Jax Miller. We are being joined now by author and investigator Jax Miller and two family members of Laura Bible. It's Laureen and Lisa. How, how's everyone doing today? Hey, thanks. thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you 
all for taking time out to join us. I know everyone is super busy with everything, you know, that's going on, parenting and working and just uh, joining us for an hour is really, we really appreciate it. And uh, it's a full house here on the, uh, on the Zoom chat. So it's uh, pretty cool to see everybody, you know, in person after talking, you know, through email and, and yeah, just, you know, reading about everything. It's, it's really cool that you all were able to make it. So yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. So, um, if you can I, tell us a little bit about um, how you met each other, I guess, is maybe a good place to start. Well, I, I, I think Lorraine and Lisa, you all known each other a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, several years ago, we started a Facebook page. And um, to kind of put it in a nutshell, we uh, decided it was time to use some social media to try to help solve our case. And uh, one day in checking messages, this crazy author, there's this, this message saying, Hey, I want to write a book. And, uh, so I got a hold of Lorraine and I'm like, Hey, this author chick wants to write a book. And she's like, well, whatever, tell her to come on. And so, uh, Lorraine and Ann started talking and I really never thought she would show up because we have multiple people who want to, uh, write books and tell our story and then they never show up. But lo and behold, she showed up and, uh, we just can't seem to shake her now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have you. Thank you. No, I it, it's it's been it's been really fun. I remember my first conversation with Lorreen, and uh, you know, I I always said to her, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'll never forget this. I said to her, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I never wrote nonfiction. This was all new to me. And she says, Well, neither do I. But I just keep doing it anyway. And that's always stuck with me since that first conversation. And so you are investigating uh, this case, and you were you were part of this television show that was investigating this case as well. And um, so I guess coming from a fiction background, how did that work for you? I think that there um, two very different things: fiction uh, versus nonfiction. I think that they serve very different beasts. I mean, I think fiction is very cathartic. It's a, it's about it's about getting my my demons out and. Um, you know, with nonfiction, with true crime, it's really about serving something greater than yourself. And that was something I didn't realize until after I was, you know, deeper into this story. But I, I, I'd always been haunted by this story. There was something about it. It always stuck with me. I can't remember from where I, I heard it. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to help in any way I could. And I knew that this story needed a spotlight. I knew that it needed more attention. And uh, I knew that Lorene had worked so hard in, in keeping it active, you know, and Lisa and, and everyone else, um, with, with keeping the story so active and I, I just wanted to help any way I could. That had to have been quite a, um, uh, intimidating task. Were you, were you intimidated when you first reached out? Because, um, it is a powerful, tragic story. Just reading, um, the, the peripheral details is, is enough to be, um, very disturbing. And, and then the more you read about it, the, the, the more, uh, tragic it becomes so what was i know you said that you were really uh drawn to it but but was there part of you that was thinking that this might be too much to 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 handle especially when you're talking with direct family members yeah and you know that's something i do talk about in the book as well is yeah i mean i i didn't know what i was doing and i think i i came to this story from a very different perspective from from the from how I left the story or, or how I continue to be with the story. Um, you know, there was a lot of growth in between. There was a lot of learning and listening. And so when I came to this story, I wasn't as intimidated as I should have been. And over time I did learn how to be a little more sensitive. I did learn how to shut up a little more and listen to the families a little more. Um, you know, it, it, it was a growing experience. And I think that that should be the experience all the time when dealing with true crime. I think you, you really should grow with every with every case and and every story. And what did what did what did Jax do to earn your trust? Uh, Loreen and, and Lisa, what was it about her that stood out? And, and you said this is the person that's going to tell the story the best way and the most honest way and the fairest way. Lorraine, you want to give that a go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you meet someone that's a writer. You, you know, at that point, we hadn't read any of her books, what she's about. You just learn as that person works with you. Yeah. And you go from there. For me, uh, I will say that um, I was probably a little bit harder to trust. Um, I, I liked her from the beginning, but she came in 
and I'm, I don't mean to step on her toes by any means. And when her and I have had extensive, extensive conversation about this, but um, she came in kind of bigger than life and, you know, she'd had a very successful book. You know, she came in and wanted to investigate our case that we had already spent many years investigating. And uh, she just kind of took over some things, uh, which was a good thing. I mean, she needed to figure things out for herself. But um, I was the one sitting back, kind of putting, putting the brakes on whenever um, I felt like she was, and, and I told her once, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're not a hero riding in on a white stallion to save our day. And I need you to stop thinking that way. Because I think in the beginning, as she said, her perspective was a lot different than what it is now. And so I was the one often throwing the brakes on um, at one point in time when they were filming the CNN uh, series, the HLN series, and the crew was here. I just really was not happy with the direction things were going and just said, um, you know, stop the presses. Let's just stop this now. And unless you can get on the same page we're on, get on a plane and get out. And um, fortunately, I think that was kind of a wake up call to Jax. Um, you know, we were able to kind of work through that. And she saw things from a different perspective for us. And I started connecting better with her. And when she started writing the book, God love her. Uh, she sent a couple of different times and I said, I don't like it. Throw it out. It's bad. And it's not that it was bad writing. She's an excellent writer. It just, she wasn't making that connection to our case and that connection to us personally. But thank God she was willing to uh, listen to all my complaints. And she was willing to not say these people are crazy and I'm not doing this. She stuck it out. And she, like she mentioned, she grew a lot and she did. Um, and now she's one of my best friends. I talk to her daily and uh, I'm, I'm glad that she's here. But, but yeah, it was definitely challenging in the beginning. Wow. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that that makes sense. And I think I feel like we've kind of heard uh, similar th thoughts, um, you know, you, you, you know, and I feel like uh, that that's really great that the jacks can actually even admit that. And, and we do that as well, because I, I feel like we've made a lot of errors um, in our past and uh, maybe felt that way, too, as if or, or brought that impression, oh, we're riding in on our white horse to to help here. And that's really not it at all. Um, so, yeah, that's that's pretty profound. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I don't know what you We are right 100% of the time. Anyone who disagrees with us is 100% inaccurate <laughs> uh, and disrespectful. No, Say, I, no, my heart was in the right place. I wasn't purposefully being, um, you know, I, I wasn't purposefully being arrogant. It was just, and, and I was a little bit in the beginning, but I, I really, I, I mean it from my heart. My heart was in the right place. I just wasn't, I, I didn't have my head on straight then. I, I, I wasn't seeing things for what they were then. But um, no, I, I never, you know, came in wanting like, you know, to profit and to, you know, it was never that. It was never that. So I just wanted to make I, my, my heart. Was oh, there. yeah. Yes. And I will say for sure, that is not ever the impression that, that we got, that she was here to make lots of money. And no, 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 that wasn't it at all. I think that um, just initially, you know, I think she really thought, oh, I'm going to come in here and we're going to figure this out and, and it's going to be an easy case and this is going to be an easy book to write very quickly she found out that this was not going to be an easy, <laughs> easy task at all, but I'm so glad she stuck it out with us. Yeah, I, really. What a, what a cool thing to happen because we communicate a lot and have relationships with a lot of journalists and uh, sometimes family members and people that are so you know closely connected to uh, a particular crime or a cold case, a missing person case, anything unsolved, like they'll, uh, they they will look at this reporter as someone or an author as someone who is just strictly trying to profit on on a case and for the most part it's about getting the the word out there in sort of a uh, social educational uh, purpose you know you you, you want to talk about um, the the bad people in the world you want to talk about the victims and and the uh, the the victims families and the secondary victims and 
it's not about the profit, but so many people think it is. So many people think like you're just coming in and, 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 and it's from a place of, you know, I'm going to just cover this and move on like a quick smash and grab of cash and, and hit the road and get my TV show. But it's not like, uh, and it's so cool that you, you all identified it and worked through it instead of, instead of just dis- being dismissive about it. So I, I, I give you all the, all the props in the world for that. Cause that, that's really, it's really strong to do that, to have that trust. Thank you. And yes, we did. I mean, I think for a little while I did have that thought of, oh, she's, she's going to write our story and it is going to get it out there, but it's about the profit. And I have learned God loves that poor sweet girl. She has sunk more money into this case than she will probably ever profit from it. Um, quite honestly. And we know that firsthand. I know other people do find that hard to believe, but we have seen firsthand what she has went through to be able to do this and will forever be grateful. Um, you know, even as she's sitting there eating her cheese and crackers and can't afford much else, we're grateful for everything that she sacrificed to tell the story for us. Oh, I love you guys. Thank you. You're making me blush. <laughs> well, we have Lisa and Laureen here. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about Laura as a person? She was a 16-year-old girl that was a cheerleader. Uh, she was friends with everybody. Um, you know, she pretty much told you point blank if she didn't like something, what she liked, what she thought you was doing wrong. Um, she didn't, um, go through life thinking she was better than anybody else. Um, she was very considerate. We had lost my sister-in-law in September before Laura disappeared in, in uh, December. And uh, she, uh, when I stayed there, she was there right beside me the whole time. Cause she died of breast cancer and she was there camping out, watching movies, you know, helping with her two boys and cleaning the house and stuff like that. She was a fun, she was a fun girl too. She was uh, the life of the party and just an all American girl. Really? She really was. And Lisa, it's been, it's been said numerous times that you were um, raised less like a cousin and more like a sister. Uh, And, and you obviously were connected with uh, Ashley Freeman as well and, and her parents. Um, What, what was their relationship like? And to be honest, like, when we do interviews like this, uh, it's only a handful of times where I actually get like very uh, nervous. Um, so I'll tell you right now, like I'm very intimidated. I didn't even know how to bring up uh, Laura and Ashley. So I appreciate Tim doing the <laughs> breaking the ice on that because it's so it's so incredible how close you are to the tragedy, and and survivors like that just. Uh, kind of blow my mind uh, you know from time to time so this is one of those moments but um yeah anyway what what, what was their relationship like and and what was what was it like just being you know around around them uh you know just as as friends okay well honestly um yes we were raised like sisters but there's uh 16 of us cousins and we all lived within uh, about a five mile radius of each other and grandma's house was grand central station so we were all there all the time in and out no one knocked on doors at any of our houses we just we all lived together i was probably closer to laura and melissa my other cousin because both of us had extenuating circumstances that made laureen more like a mother to us and so we did hang out a lot um but there was also six years between laura and i and so in the latter years, especially in the years right before she was taken, I was 23. Um, I was already married. And so we didn't spend as much time together then because I had, I was an adult. She was in high school. And so my time around her and Ashley were really not that much. I knew that she had Ashley. They'd been friends forever. You know, they were close friends and we had reached that stage in our life before the girls were taken that she was busy doing teenage girl things with her friends and I was busy learning how to be a wife. And, uh, and so in those latter years, really, I can't speak so much of their relationship other than they were always together. 
they were, you know, they were tight friends and, um, this, I just, I just hate that all this happened. And it, it all happened in uh, 1999, right? December 30th, somewhere in the early morning hours of December 30th, 1999. Uh, do you remember when you first heard the news about the fire and then how it all kind of played out after? Absolutely. Um, oddly, that day, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones like we do now. So um, if you had a cell phone, you were pretty lucky and, and I didn't have one. And on that particular day, I had went to Tulsa, which is about an hour and a half from where I lived, to do after Christmas shopping. I'm a big Christmas buff. I knew there were sales to be had, so I was gone. When I returned home that night, there was a note taped to my front door that said, do not go in your house. Please come across the street. My best friend happened to live across the street from me. And she knew what was going on. She had been intercepting the calls. Um, I had been shopping all day, completely oblivious to what was going on. So when I find this note taped to my door, I'm like, well, this is weird. I've never had a note taped to my door telling me not to go in my house. Um, And she knew that I would go in and check my answering machine first thing and that all these messages were going to be there where people would have been frantically looking for me. So I take the note off the door and I walk across the street to my friend's house and I'm like, what the heck? And she said, "Um, I need you to sit down. We've got to talk about something. And uh, I said, okay. So I sit down and she said, "Um, there was a fire this morning at Ashley Freeman's house and Laura had spent the night there. And I'm like, okay. And she said, "Um, we don't know where the girls are. And I just remember saying, well, that's not a very funny joke because she was a, she was a jokester. And I said, that's not very funny. And she said, Lisa, I'm not kidding. And I really don't think for a few minutes, I still believed her. And I said, well, what do you mean that we don't know where the girls are? She said, the girls are missing. And I said, so did the house completely burn? Like, what does that mean? There was a fire. She said, the house is burnt to the ground. Uh, They have found one body and they have no idea where the girls are. And I said, whose body did they find? Do we know for sure it's not the girls? And she said, it's believed to be Kathy Freeman. Danny has not been found. The girls have not been found. And I remember just kind of being in shock and disbelief initially. And then once it, you know, kind of reality hit, hey, she's not kidding. I picked up the phone and called my grandma. And, you know, from there, I just remember being in a panic. I remember thinking, I don't know what to do other than to drive to my grandma's house. I mean, it was late, like probably uh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I remember driving to my grandparents' house and, you know, walking in and everybody's there and we don't know what's going on. And I've asked, you know, where's Lorene? Where's Jay? And they said they're at the police department. Um, Everything was just so chaotic. And it was such disbelief at the time that, um, you know, it took a little while for reality to set in that this was real and not a scene from a crazy movie. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned that they hadn't found Danny's body. Danny was Ashley's father. And Lorene, you and your husband are the ones that found his body. Is that correct? Yeah, we found them the next morning. The whole time while we were sat there, I learned about the fire about... 15 minutes to eight, one of the county deputies come to my place of employment and asked me if I knew who Ashley Freeman was. And I told him, yes, that's my daughter's best friend. Laura stayed the night last night. And I could just tell his demeanor that something was wrong. And he said, we need to go back in your office. So we went back in my office and uh, he told me there'd been a fire, and which I'd already knew that the Freeman's house was on fire because my son had called me and told me his girlfriend had called and said that the Freeman's house was on fire, and he was headed that way to see if he could help them. I didn't say it was already burnt to the ground. And I could tell by looking at him that the house was a total loss. And I said, did you find anybody? And he told me they'd found one body. 
It was in that front bedroom. And I said, well, that's Kathy and Danny's bedroom. So it's probably Kathy, because they could tell it was that of a woman. And uh, he asked me if I knew the layout of the trailer, which I did. And uh, I told him, you know, the different layout. And he was telling them on his intercom, uh, his two-way radio, what I was telling him. And he said, okay, well, we'll let you know if we if if we need you for anything else and he left which it took him probably 12 years 13 years before he'd even look at me in the face because he says i sat there as just like i'm talking to you and i talked to him as he was asking me questions and he said i didn't know what to do he said most people yelling, screaming, crying, you know, and he said, you answered everything. And I called my husband after he left, I called my husband and told him that the Freeman's house had burnt to the ground and they'd only found one body because he worked over on the lake. So he come in and we went to the Freeman's. When we got there, we were a thousand foot feet down the driveway all day. They wouldn't let us in. So all we could do is see that the county deputies at that time were all sitting around. They had already decided when they found Kathy's body to call in the OSBI. So we're sitting here waiting. Nobody's looking. You know, and throughout the day, they kind of like would look a little bit, but they didn't move anything. So uh, about five o'clock, they turned the scene over after they take Kathy's body out, do a quick search and inform us that there's no other bodies in that fire. They're 100% sure there's no bodies in that fire. And then we were asked if we would all meet at the sheriff's department and they're gonna tell us how they're gonna find Laura Nashley. All they asked when we got there is if Denny and Kathy ever fought, you know, did anybody not dislike him that would gone in there and killed Kathy or the relationship between Denny and Kathy because somebody had called in a tip that they had seen Danny in a white Ford truck and he had the two girls and he wanted to trade them for the deputy that shot their son a year before that, which turned out to be bogus. But, you know, we're still believing rumor has it instead of go, you know, find out. So the next morning at daybreak, you know, I'm one of these people until I can touch it, see it, smell it, I don't believe you. So we went the next morning, we're sitting there looking underneath. Uh, Danny and Kathy had a waterbed and that's the only floor left intact was the floor underneath that waterbed. And, uh, Jay had looked up and they, Danny had a Rottweiler dog and he'd been laying up there beside Danny all night. So at that point, I went two miles up the road and called and told, called 911, told them who I was. I was at the Freeman's and there was another body in that fire. And this was, this was next to the or in the waterbed, next to the waterbed? Denny was laying at the foot of the waterbed with both of his feet touching the waterbed. And he was laid out face up. And you could tell that he'd been shot at point blank uh, range because he didn't have a face. Jesus. And good God. 
how did they miss him? Yeah, I would have to imagine you were pretty frustrated at this point. Well, at that point, they were all a bunch of liars, and I don't believe anybody anymore. So that's why we took up the cause to find Laura and Ashley ourselves. Is because of that. You know, that's, that's just it. But they say that the day of the fire, that the debris that had come down from the ceiling and stuff was covering him. They walked on him. The OSBI agent had cowboy boots on. He had walked on Danny, and Danny had those cowboy prints embedded in his body, on his top of his torso. So they just didn't look. They did not look. Well, that is that is disappointing. Why wouldn't they look? Why are they there in the first place? In their mind... They believed that Danny and Kathy had gotten a fight. Danny had shot Kathy, uh, took the girls, and he was wanting the deputy that had shot his son. Because for a year, Danny and the county deputies kept going back and forth harassing each other. Oh, okay, I see. So that played into that. So we didn't do our job. We didn't look. So... I took that and I ran with it. Everybody's like, well, you need to stay home. You need to quit going places. I'll do what I need to do to find my child. Because you people didn't find a body that was inside the fire. So I'm not going to take your word at anything else. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Uh, Now, where did you start, though? That seems like an incredibly daunting task. You know, a lot of people had heard a lot. Hey, you need to look here. You need to look here. Uh, Just word of mouth, people calling us, telling us things, and we would go. I I just want to say, I think one of the most incredible things that that Lorene did, and, you know, she won't won't speak highly of herself too often, so sometimes I have to, but no one had put the girls into the NCIC and Lorene did that herself. It was like the next day. I think um, she, she had created flyers. She went to the sheriff's office. She got the girls into the database. Like she was really, she put her investigators cap on and did all that work. And for the next few days, they had so much help from the community, but they were the ones who were putting evidence markers down. They were the ones who were sifting at the crime scene. I mean, it was the family. So I just wanted to say that, you know, it, it wasn't just Lorene, waiting to hear tips. She, she was very active. She put, she, she acted as the lead agent, lead detective, you name it. She was it. What was, what was like the law enforcement saying about that at the time? Were they even communicating like this is an active crime scene? You can't be here. Or were they just like checked out of the whole thing over a grudge, right? Like this seems like it was over something personal. Well, uh, after the first day at five o'clock in the evening, it was, you know, winter they turned their scene over back to the family. They were done. So the second day they come out there, they, they're telling us, you guys need to go back down the, down the driveway. And my husband, Jay, said, no, we sat there yesterday and watched you do nothing. So today I'm in your back pocket. No, I'm going to be in your front pockets. I'm not moving. So basically we sat there and I said, how do you know the girls are here in this trailer? How do you know they're not underneath something? You guys did not move anything. And they're like, well, we were sure. You were sure there wasn't a body and there was a body in there right there. So how do you know there's not another body? Those girls aren't underneath something. And I said, I have... 150 people that will help me take this trailer house to the ground. Well, they can't get over here. I said, excuse me, you know, it's not your crime scene. You turned it over to us last night at five o'clock. The family will do this. You can either help us or you step back. And at that point, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to put some of the men that can pick up, you know, stove, refrigerators and stuff and left them up and start looking underneath this stuff. 
And, uh, but we had to wait till they removed Danny's body. And then once they removed Danny's body, then we physically took everything out of the trailer. And we went and cut the trailer axles in half and pulled it apart and looked and sifted the ground to make sure the girls wasn't underneath there. And wow. I made them, I made them stay all day. I knew by two o'clock in the afternoon, maybe three, that the girls wasn't there. But because they were, you know, the experts and they were a hundred percent sure, I decided that they could just stay a little longer. When was it determined, and who determined that this was arson? Uh, you could tell. Yeah. You you could tell that it was somebody had set the house on fire. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Did you know of any enemies or, or anything like that, that that the Freemans had? Well, at the time, I mean, I knew that Dennis grew and sold marijuana. He had done that for quite a few years, even when they used to live across the section from us when the girls were little when when they were the kids were little they moved to welch when ashley was a sixth grader um and she was a sophomore then he'd grow he'd grow and he'd sell he wasn't a big dealer you know but uh i knew that coming and going that's why Ashley spent more time in my home than Laura ever did in her home. In fact, that's the first time in over a year and a half that Laura had spent the night with Ashley. Yep. And I'm going to interject there. I think that's important to clarify because we hear often, why would you let your child go stay the night with somebody if you knew that they were a bad person? Nobody knew that Danny was a bad guy. Yeah, we knew he grew and sold a little marijuana, but you know, back in those days, we didn't get in people's business like we do now. We didn't have Facebook where everyone's life was on display. And there was never a question um, about the girl's safety uh, as far as being, you know, Laura being with Ashley, but, but Ashley was more always with Laura. If it hadn't been Ashley's 16th birthday, Laura wouldn't have been there. So, um, you know, for those people who often think, well, why would you let your kid go there if you knew? Nobody knew that sort of stuff. And there was never a question for her safety, you know, when she was with Ashley. So I just think that's important to clarify. Yeah, thanks. And uh, and it's not like marijuana is a really hard drug. It doesn't usually come with um, the the kind of things that uh, that harder drugs come with as far as dealing it, unless you're unless it's like big amounts, I think. Right. Correct. So when did the investigation start making progress or I guess, I guess when did major press start, start getting involved and in, in trying to help with, with the case? Well, we were on America's most wanted. We have a lady that lives in Vanita that was friends with a lady, which was John Walsh's ex-wife. So the lady I know, Jennifer, called up her friend and said, hey, I think this would be something, could you call John's uh, wife and see if she can get a message to him to see about covering this? You know, it's small time, small town, rural America, stuff like this doesn't happen. John had uh, called and told me, you have a choice to make, and you need to do it ASAP. You're either going to go hide in a closet, and in five years, nobody will know who your daughter is. Or you can become her voice, and everybody will know who she is. Well, I'm that type of person. I become Laura's voice. You know, where am I? What am I doing to keep it going? Uh, you know, we did several, we've done several different TV shows. People just, at that time, that was the first time I'd ever had a cell phone. 
I had a, um, a friend that owned a cell phone company. They give me the best deal you could get. I had it for almost, I had it for 16 and a half years that I could go anywhere in the four states and it not cost me a lot of money. Uh, so people got out, people knew my cell phone number. Hey, you need to go look here. Hey, we heard this. And I would go to those people. I would go to the people that were talking, not the ones that had heard to rule out, is this some place we've been already or is it something new? And that's what I did for the first six months. That's all I did after Lord disappeared was get in my car and drive. I was just going to say, you, you don't really strike me as the type of person who wouldn't do something like that if you were given the option. And uh, do you think that this was a way to, I mean, obviously, I guess, as I'm asking the question, I realize how obvious it is. Did you immediately see this as a way to manage your your shock and your grief? Because it must have been an incredibly shocking and traumatic moment in your life, obviously. So do you see that now or did you see that then that this mission that you were on was a way to uh, harness it? Can I answer that question? I mean, I, I showed up and was with her and I will say from the first minute, I mean, I, of course I, since I was two years old, she's been my aunt and um, she's always been very headstrong and very in charge of any situation in any room. She's been in charge. And from that very minute, I don't think that she took the time to think, oh my gosh, my kid's missing. It was, oh my gosh, I have to find my kid and I can't sit still and find my kid. And often I hear people say, where's her emotion in it? They will never see that. I personally have seen it a few times, but she is, you know, I don't know another way, way to say she's balls to the wall, but she is hardcore on, I'm not going to mourn my kid. I'm going to find my kid. And yes, I mean, she had her moments that were behind closed doors that people didn't know about, but she, instead of taking that, all that energy to sit down and cry about her missing child, she took all that energy to, I'm not going to sit down until I find my child. So uh, I know a lot of times when we talk about her emotion and her being so strong, she doesn't know any other way than to turn that emotion into action. And that is definitely the person that she became in that, in that moment. And there were many times we're driving thousands of miles that I want to fall asleep in the car or I want to sit and cry. And then I look over at her and she's so focused and she's so driven and you can't help but be that with her and for her and continue to just go on because I didn't ever want her to, to feel like her or my uncle Jay had to do that alone. And I'm very controlling and very strong too. And I'm going to blame that on her, even though She's not my blood aunt. She's been my blant, my aunt since I was two years old. She's been my mother most of my life. Um, so I'm going to blame that on her. <laughs> I have that same hardcore personality of we'll, we'll take time to be emotional later. There's work to be done right now. When, when uh, we were filming, I remember we went to, uh, we went to grandma Dixie's house and she bought out the cheerleading uniform that Laura used to cheer in. And I have a 16 year old daughter myself. And that day it just hit me the wrong way. And, you know, I try not to, to cry. I try to keep my emotions in check, but I went outside and I ugly cried. I was like holding my mic away. I didn't want to be on TV crying. I was just like, <laughs> I mean, I was ugly crying because I just imagined my own daughter. And I came back in after I wiped away all the tears and, 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 and rinsed off my face. I came back in and Lorene's just staring at me. And she said to me, I'll never forget this. She says, I'll have my day. When, I, when I'm standing over that hole in the ground, that will be my day till morn. But that day is not today. And that's just who she's always been. That's the, she's always been so strong. And that's actually one of the biggest reasons I stayed with the story because, you know, I, I wanted to leave several times. I'm, I'm sure they'll tell you. And, um, I, you know, her, her strength was just, it impressed me so much. And I was like, I want to be this woman. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go you know, through what she's gone through, but I just, I've always found her so admirable and strong. And that's always who she's been 
you know, she's always been that strong. I'll cry on that day. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that that would be a lot of emotion to uh, to let out um, at that at that time. Um, it sounds exhausting just to kind of hold that uh, that emotion back for your own um, private moments. So uh, I can't even imagine. We're we're talking about the, like harnessing and reining in your emotion and how exhausting that must be. One of the, or I, I guess, was he the main perpetrator? That Ronnie Busick. Uh, was one of three who was convicted uh, is convicted the right word he was just he was just recently convicted and the other two uh warren welch and david pennington were the other two perpetrators in this crime uh and and um busick was just recently sentenced to 10 years is that right he was sentenced to 10 years for for this and loreen you spoke to him was that I am getting to a point here. Was was that a moment where you um like could have lost control, or did you feel like you were almost losing control of this emotion? No, because early on, if I could have found the men responsible for Laura and Ashley, I could have probably I could have took a gun and shot them. But as this played out, and as the years. That makes me no better than them if I killed them. You know, then I become them and I'm better than them. Laura and Ashley were better than them. So I wanted him to know, even though he's a monster, you know, I have to have a peace so I can continue what I need to do to find the girls that he's not going to consume me that, oh, you know, you got 10 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's not my focus. My focus is finding the girls. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how you do it because we do the true crime uh, podcast. Uh, we're, we're in this genre. We talk to people and, and to hear you say that, like, I always try to put myself in, in, uh, victim's shoes or or the secondary victim's shoes and i almost can't do it for more than like a, a couple minutes at a time because I, I i get so like worked up like even on interviews i i sometimes just mute myself because i i will end up getting too worked up and just stuttering my way through something completely uh illogical but i i i, I like i said i almost can't do it for more than a few minutes to put myself in your shoes because it, it would I, I, it's really like, I'm really always humbled by people like you who will say, listen, that person's not going to take up my time. I have more productive things to do and he doesn't deserve my time. So, uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's really great how, how you're able to do that. Well, I think it, if the focus is on him, it's not on the girls. And one thing I've tried to do is keep the focus on the girls, no matter what we've done is because that's the top priority is bringing those two girls home. And also, you know, we, we are Christians and thank goodness for that because we would not have made it this far if it hadn't been for um, our faith. And, you know, we definitely rely on God a lot to help us get through all of this. And uh, he definitely has, uh, has walked with us this whole time. And we've had to definitely learn patience and we've had to learn grace and um, I firmly always believe that nothing ever happens in vain I don't believe that the girls um, you know were taken in vain and somewhere somehow there's going to be something good used for this uh, whether it's and and I always try to you know think that even though we don't know it it's possible that other children have already been saved because of what the girls went through because I know now parents are more proactive about watching where their kids go. They're more, especially in our area, sleepovers are handled a lot differently. And we do know more about people and we check people out more. So inadvertently, I believe the girls have already saved lives that we'll never know that they saved. And, uh, and so our faith has really helped us a lot, a lot of the way too. Well, that's great. Yeah, I'm sure they, they, the girls have protected uh, people who are, who have become aware of their story. Maybe their surroundings are safer because of that. Lisa and Jax, you both have um, 
daughters that are or were around the same age and how much did this i mean you you basically said at least that you you are more aware of where they're at and and you know where they're playing outside and um what what do, have you ever communicated this to your daughters to say listen this this is a pretty scary world and this is what can happen have you ever done that in, in any way oh definitely um my daughter turned 16 in three weeks and um her from the time she turned 15 until now, it's been a lot harder for me than what I really thought it was going to be. Um, she, you know, she has a car now. She's going to start driving in a few weeks. Um, of course, you know, we laugh at home because I, mom has the crazy stalker app and I know her whereabouts at all times, yet I still have to try to give her that freedom, but she completely understands. She's been immersed in this her entire life. So she does understand. And we have had, you know, early on when she became a young teenager, you know, she had some friends whose parents maybe didn't quite understand why I wouldn't let her sleep over. I don't, I mean, I think they knew, but I don't think they really thought it through. And there were some, some scuttle and some talk about how I helicopter parented my daughter. And, And then I think, you know, I finally had to say, look, you haven't walked in my shoes. You don't know what I went through. I mean, you think you do, but you don't. And um, so you can either, you know, be the type of friends that my daughter needs or, you know, we'll move on. And fortunately, I mean, people have been very good and very understanding. And for the most part, my poor daughter won't stay the night anywhere. And that's her own choice. And I know that I probably have really done that to her, even though she doesn't admit it. She'll go and she'll hang out with her friends. And at bedtime, she comes home. Um, She did go on a trip for school uh, two years ago when she was 14. She went to D.C. for 10 days. So that's the first time that she's been out of my eyesight um, for any length of time. And that was huge for both of us, probably more for me than for her. She probably felt a little bit of freedom, although she'll never admit that. (laughs) But um, for 10 days, I think I sat with uh, growing ulcers in my stomach watching my phone app to see where she was at at all times, even though I knew she was with the school, she was with a big group. Um, it, it has been difficult. So, you know, raising my kids in this situation has definitely been different. And I know that, uh, that Busick was, uh, was arrested and charged and these other guys, Pennington and Welch, they died. Where, what about the girls? Are, Are they, is there any, um, searches or, or any, uh, any idea on where they could be still any, any tips on that? We've had hundreds of tips come in the last several weeks. Um, you know, we created a Facebook page back in January of 2016. That page is find Laura Bible. And at that time we started really pleading to the public to come talk to us because we knew that there had been tips lost. We knew that there had been tips turned in that had never been followed up on because we heard that a lot. So when we created that page, we made a place where people could come and talk directly to us rather than talk to law enforcement because they felt more comfortable. Uh, and then around that same time was when Gary and Tammy, uh, Gary Stansel and Tammy Ferrari took over the case and they have been amazing investigators and they they understand everything we went through and how we've had to be in control of this for so many years. So they allowed us to do that um, and work beside us rather than fight against us. And so we have had hundreds and thousands of tips come in. And especially in the last few weeks, we have done multiple searches. We've been open and public about some, and there's been some that we've not said anything about. We just go with the investigators. We do what needs to be done and we move on. So, um, so yeah, that Facebook page has really helped us in a tremendous, uh, way. I know that there's been a lot of talk about how this, you know, box that turned up in the sheriff's office is what helped and that information had already been known. So it really gets more credit than it deserves. Uh, but the credit now goes really to our Facebook page, our persistence, um, the public for getting those tips to us and, Gary and Tammy for listening to us and listening to, you know, people that are willing to give that information. 
Great. So, so you would say that that Facebook page is primarily where anyone who could be listening to this or anyone who reads about it should go if they have a tip. And feel free to give that address uh, one more time so people know exactly what to, where to go. Absolutely. Um, that Facebook page is Find Laura Bible uh, dash BBI, and the BBI stands for Bible Bureau of Investigation. That's we kind of took that name over ourselves years ago. At, really, it started as a joke. Um, and then it stuck because we were investigating everything ourselves. So Find Laura Bible um, is our Facebook page. It is completely anonymous if people choose to be. There are two people that see the messages on that page, and that is Laureen and myself, no one else. Um, and then if we find that it's a viable tip, we go through the proper steps to make sure that the people reporting that information feels protected, yet we get it to the investigators so that they can work with us to do what they need to do to uh to get where we need to go the uh the official uh, law enforcement investigators yes that that would be gary stancil and tammy ferrari those are our two go-to people they're magnificent to listen to us there's probably days whenever their cell phone rings and it's laureen or it's myself and they're like oh my gosh what do these two want today but they never ever show that they are amazing uh, people who took over from where other people didn't. And they've really, they've had some really hard steps, uh, some hard shoes to fill because we just didn't have any trust for any investigator. And they've had a couple of moments where they've done something and didn't tell us. And I can't speak for Lorraine, but myself, I'm like, hold up, you know, we don't trust you guys. So if you're going behind our back, we've, you know, that's not cool. And they've backed up. It was not intentional. They're just doing their job. Um, but they have been so good to be kind to us, knowing what we've been through. Um, and, uh, and they do make sure that we always know and that we feel included, uh, even in things that they have to do, you know, that we can't be a part of because it has to be official law enforcement business. And uh, Jax, has anyone reached out to you with tips or do you ever encourage that? Or if they do... Um... Do you try to tell them, listen, go to uh, the Facebook page or go to law enforcement? Has that ever happened? Yeah, um, actually, I get so many tips. I myself have gotten hundreds, even thousands of tips. I mean, and ask Lisa and Lorene, they'll tell you because, um, you know, I, I, I ask them, you know, hey, listen, can I pass this along to families? And, you know, 99% of the times they're like, sure. But there are some people who don't want to you know, they don't want the families to know. So I have to kind of convince them. I have to sit with them and, and kind of learn. And a lot of times I get crazy nonsense. I'm sure Lisa and Lorene do too, where it's like, oh, they're on a beach in Mexico drinking mojitos right now. Go. And it's like, that doesn't really match what we have and what we know and the evidence. Um, so there's a lot of, of people out there. I, I know I get a lot of people saying that they were there for the murders that they helped murder them. But then when you look them up and you look into their background, you see that there's a lot of mental illness and things like this. So, you know, you have to take every tip seriously, but you also have to be smart about them. But I do pass everyone over to, to the families. And I also encourage everyone like, listen, you know, why don't you go to authorities with this? A lot of people don't want to go to authorities, then go to the fine law or Bible page. Um, so yeah, I do get a lot of tips, but you have to remember too, because of, of where I, I'm at, you know, with, with the publicity brought on by the book and the TV show, a lot of people are just trying to get their 15 minutes. Um, so I do have to sift through a lot of that as well. Well, thank you everybody for, uh, for joining us and spending some time with us today. Um, and congrats on the book, Jax. Um, is, is there anything else uh, that, that you'd like to say, um, about the case or about Laura? I would just, uh, say that, uh, if there's anybody out there that knows something, you can remain, remain anonymous, but come forward and say, hey, here's what you need to know, and this is how I know what I'm saying, so that we can bring the girls home. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. 
Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.